Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Thomas N., at Cure for Low Prices, Ben H., Jim P., Dean R., at U Belgium Bull, Michael P., and Clarine H. New guest Amir Adnani is on the show today. Amir is President, CEO, and Director of Uranium Energy Corp., a uranium producer and developer with various stage uranium assets in the United States. The company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol UEC. Amir, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time, sir. Hi, Andrew. It's a pleasure to connect with you. I've got my coffee in my hand, beverage in hand, ready to go. Excellent. Well, Amir, you're pretty well known to our audience, uh, but just take a moment to tell us about your background and past experience in the natural resource sector. Yeah, I would be delighted. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur by background, Andrew, and I've been involved with uranium and gold uh, for most of the last uh, 15 years. Uh, as you introduced me, my uh, involvement with uranium started 15 years ago as the founder and CEO of Uranium Energy Corp. Uh, and that company from the get-go was focused on development of institute recovery amenable projects. We went from a business plan in 2005 to production in 2010. It was a very fast and furious execution uh, in a short time span of five years. And as we, we kind of talk about in the uranium world, uh, there, there was life pre-Fukushima and then there's life post-Fukushima. And so post-Fukushima 2011, we've pivoted and have been much more focused on development and acquisitions. Uh, similarly, and we can talk about uranium energy, I'm sure throughout the rest of this, uh, I was recently involved, as you know, and you've interviewed recently uh, Scott Melby on your show uh, with uh, the taking public of Uranium Royalty Corp, where I also serve as the chairman of that company. Uh, and uh, I think we've got a very cool and exciting business at Uranium Royalty, where Uranium Energy is the largest shareholder. And then really, when it comes to the gold side, uh, as the founder and chairman of Gold Mining Inc., uh, I've uh, overseen the development and growth of that company during a prolonged bear market, also in gold, that started in 2012. And that company is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange with the ticker symbol gold. Uh, and goldmining.com has uh, really been a mineral bank type of uh, story with the development and acquisition of a very large uh, portfolio. Five countries, about 12 million ounces of gold and measured and indicated 13 million ounces of gold and inferred. Uh, and recently, we've announced uh, the formation of Gold Royalty Corp, where the former CEO of Gold Corp, uh, David Garofalo, will be heading that up. And Warren Gilman, uh, who's uh, involved with CEF and Queens Road Capital, has joined the board of that company as well, which is currently wholly owned uh, by Gold Mining. So I'm definitely an, on, uh, an entrepreneur that uh, has a contrarian bent. I think you would have to certainly be a contrarian to have been interested in gold uh, starting in 2012 when it entered the bull market, bear market. Uh, you would have to be certainly a contrarian to be in the uranium uh, space. Uh, it's been uh, an extremely difficult uh, 
commodity to be in. It's probably been in one of the longest bear markets of any commodity that uh, I, I know of. And it's, um, but it, it provides for opportunities and it provides for opportunities to acquire assets for lower valuations. And I, I do believe in our resource business, a lot of value can be created based on what you pay for an asset. Uh, and then at some point when the commodity price works, you can really uh, maximize the value for the company and for shareholders. So uh, I'm based uh, in Vancouver. I'm a university grad of University of British Columbia, serve on that university's alumni association. Obviously, uh, uh, nowadays with COVID, uh, we all spend uh, more time based out of uh, our respective kind of home bases. But at uh, all companies that I've ever been involved with, I've always really proud, really focused on and, um, and, and paid attention to the importance of having the best teams possible. So certainly at none of these companies as entrepreneur, is it really just about me? It's, it's really about a very capable, committed and competent team that we always assemble. And that's the job of any entrepreneur is to do that uh, and make sure you've got the relevant skill set uh, coupled with uh, long-term commitment that you can uh, bring to the table to, uh, uh, to, get, to get things going. So at UEC, uh, as your audience may or may not be aware, the chairman of our company is the former United States Sec Energy Secretary, Spencer Abraham, and Scott Melby, who's recently been on your show uh, as executive VP, over 35 years of experience in the uranium mining industry and with the majors. Uh, let me stop there in case I'm going uh, too long than, uh, than what the, the time for the question. Appreciate that and, and really appreciate the, the extensive overview, Amir, of what you're up to. And let's talk just uranium market conditions uh, immediately here, Amir. Your thoughts on the effects of the U.S. elections coming up, the Russian suspension agreement to resolve, potentially, of course, COVID and these impacts on term contracting to potentially start in 2021. What's your thoughts? I do believe there's growing bipartisan support for nuclear power, and it really has to do with the fact that uh, if, if you care about the environment, uh, you recognize you need nuclear power in the mix. So when you have the fact that many climate scientists and environmental uh, groups have become uh, supportive of nuclear power's capabilities to, to create emission-free electricity on a large scale and on a, in a baseload matter, uh, that has also really allowed uh, uh, the left to align with the right. I think the, the right side of the political spectrum sees nuclear power from a standpoint of perhaps national security. I think the left side of the political spectrum sees it from a standpoint of an important ingredient uh, and when it comes to dealing with environmental concerns. And so I do believe um, there will be bipartisan support. In fact, one of the least contentious bills the president signed, uh, President Trump's side in his last three years was the Nuclear Energy Innovation and Modernization Act, which did have bipartisan support. Uh, and so to that extent, um, uh, I think uh, there, there should be less uh, impact uh, to how nuclear power is viewed and perceived and the role it plays in the energy mix, uh, irrespective of the election outcome later this year. With respect to the National Reserve that was proposed in the Nuclear Fuel Working Group recommendations and the report that came out in April, uh, that realistically will be delayed and probably uh, put on the shelf until after the election. It's difficult to think that that can gain momentum from its standpoint of funding for that program to get year, years one or two funded to get up and running. Uh, but having said that, I think when you look at that report, when you look at how decisive 
and forceful it was in its conclusions and recommendations uh, when it comes to how intrinsically nuclear power and national security are tied together and how unacceptable it is to be uh, wholly dependent on foreign sources of uranium for domestic consumption and power generation. There's currently no uranium mining left in the United States, so it's 100% import. All of those key conclusions uh, are, are, are not very, they're not necessarily political, they're factual. Uh, and, uh, and so I think also moving forward after the election, uh, I, I, there will also be bipartisan support for the concept of supporting a national reserve uh, at a time where there's no uranium mining left in the U.S. And so again, you have a very comprehensive, I think, nuclear energy and uranium mining initiative that came out of the Department of Energy, which is arguably the most comprehensive uh, initiative and government policy document since the Eisenhower administration in the 50s. And so it's quite historic. Uh, uh, any, uh, any initiative of this historical um, uh, importance and also of, of real meat and uh, significance, I think will take longer to implement. And so when we, as we head into 2021, there really is now a heck of a document from a manifesto and blueprint point of view that the US government has put out there, which I think truly speaks to long-term commitment to nuclear power, long-term commitment to uranium mining, and most importantly, uh, the domestic mining of uranium and other nuclear fuel capabilities. Uh, I think as important as it is now to everyone that we should have domestic capabilities when it comes to making masks and gloves and ventilators, uh, those supply chains matter. And having domestic capabilities in your backyard now matters more because of the experience we've all lived through with the pandemic and how critical those supply chains become when there's a, when there's a squeeze or a pinch point. Uh, and again, I think it's completely unacceptable to anyone moving forward that we wouldn't address the supply chain issues in nuclear fuel, including uranium, uh, as we would with just about any other essential goods uh, that we have come to really count on. Uh, Amir, the Russian suspension agreement, what do you think will come out of that? And with this reserve potentially being funded, do you see if that takes still a couple of years to get underway, how will the Russian suspension agreement and this uh, domestic programs affect potentially term contracting start? The uranium miners and the, and the Trump administration have argued that there's that, that an over-reliance on Russia for our energy supplies is not only unnecessary, but just dangerous to our national security. Uh, I think furthermore, President Trump directed commerce to continue the limitations on Russian imports of uranium, and so ideally reduce them. Uh, this was, again, a policy that was articulated in the nuclear fuel working group recommendations. Uh, and again, the point was to revitalize the domestic uranium industry and fuel cycle. So. I, I, you know, just reading the tree leaves and, and at, at the same time, as a member of the Uranium Producers of America, we're purview to certain confidential discussions that um, I, I need to obviously walk a fine line with any comments I make. But I would just say that reading the tree leaves, the likely outcome is that there will be uh, significantly reduced quantities of Russian uranium entering the U.S. market uh, over what is currently allowed. Uh, and um, the utilities will continue to get some of the desired access to Russian enrichment that they look for. But ultimately, there's going to be a boost in demand for U.S. and Western supplies of natural uranium and to some extent other services along the fuel cycle. 
uh, and, and this, I think, is somewhat uh, of an overhang potentially in the kickoff of, of the next contracting cycle, as, as you're obviously uh, aware. And I, I say that obviously because I presume you've had lots of guests on the show that talk about uranium market uh, fundamentals. But there's a cumulative gap uh, of three over 300 million pounds by 2026 just between uh, demand uh, and uh, production of uranium. And the last meaningful contracting cycle we had was pre-Fukushima, so almost a decade ago. Uh, and so obviously we had two years uh, leading up to last summer where there was an overhang in the market because of the ongoing uh, Section 232 process and the commerce investigation into that. And now ever since that ended, you had this prolonged seven-month period until the administration finally published the findings of the nuclear fuel working group. And now the last piece in my mind that needs to get resolved by the end of this year, which it will, is the final outcome of the Russian suspension agreement, all of which means coming to the end of this year, any possible overhang that could have been government action that would have potentially impacted the mindset of a fuel buyer or a utility before the next major contracting cycle began would be potentially added away, including not just U.S. utilities, but international utilities, all of which would look at, obviously, the U.S. dynamics uh, as a sign of where the rest of the market would fall in place before, uh, in fact, some of their serious initiatives uh, kick off, including China. Uh, I don't think the contracting cycle is one that needs to start and end just with U.S. utilities. It, it truly will be global in scale, uh, and China will be a very important driver of that, as they have in previous cycles. Good point on China. And Amir, uh, let's uh, assume for a moment, talking about UEC, that uranium is 50 a pound and utilities are executing long-term contracts. What is the UEC plan to take advantage of that? What key projects will be the focus? And will Scott be obtaining term contracts? And at what point to justify a production startup, what price would that be? And does the company plan to sell pounds into the spot market at some point? Since uh, 2013, when we shut our production in, and even when we were in production, UEC does have a track record of having uh, been an unhedged producer. So in fact, in our entire history, we've never entered into any long-term contracts. Uh, we always have had a belief about remaining 100% unhedged, and that's been the case uh, up until now. Now, when we think about the future moving forward, uh, there are some nuances and differences, uh, the, the biggest one being the United States Uranium Reserve. That it will be a process where uh, you would have to compete in a competitive, you would have to submit offers in a competitive bidding process when the program is funded. And that is something that's going to look more like a contract once you're awarded any, any of that business. And so presumably anything that we sell in the future into the U.S. National Reserve would be under some predetermined parameter of price quantities for delivery and would look more like a contract. Beyond that, at this point, there is no predetermined uh, uh, strategy in terms of volumes or quantities we would want to commit to contracts. But having said that, uh, we arguably have the most competent and well-connected sales and marketing team in, in the entire uh, industry out there, led by Scott Melby, which Powell, both of whom have decades of selling and marketing uranium, both in the U.S. and globally. Scott, as you, you know, and just to remind uh, audience that maybe is not familiar with them, 
was the president of Chemical uh, Global Sales and Marketing and uh, just president of Chemical Inc. and responsible for all of Chemical's uh, portfolio con of contracts, which exist even to this day, uh, were spearheaded by, by Scott and put in place uh, over a 20-year career with Chemical. And having advised and led similar initiatives for companies like Uranium One and Kazatom Prompt. So we certainly have the individuals that understand and have the relationships and as to what it takes uh, if we were to commit to long-term contracts and uh, potential pricing. Uh, and certainly I think it would be a different kettle of fish dealing with the U.S. government and the National Reserve versus utilities. I also think we, again, have always viewed our business very much as a global business, not just uh, being in the U.S. sandbox, uh, but asking ourselves both the question of how do you have projects that can compete on a global scale, not just on, on a U.S. scale, and how do you position yourself so you can supply uranium, not just to U.S. utilities, but globally? That's always been our mandate, and that's one of the key reasons as to why you saw UEC uh, remain neutral and not be an active participant in some of the uh, uh, trade-related uh, initiatives and uh, uh, issues that took place in the last two years. On that note, to come back to your question about uh, production and development, I think what's, what's uh, arguably lost on people from time to time is the significance of the role in-situ recovery mining has played in the supply side growth and production growth of the uranium mining industry over the last 15 years. There's a lot of conventional projects out there in the world. There's a lot of development stage conventional projects in the world, but the bulk of production growth in the last 15 years has been via Institute recovery, the Institute recovery method, and mainly in the country of Kazakhstan. This does support uh, an, an, a number of key initiatives. It's quite time, it takes a lot of time and capital to build conventional mines. Uh, probably the best company in the world that understands how to build conventional mines is Cameco. And you look at the over 20 years it took them to develop and bring Cigar Lake online. Uh, and uh, conventional mines are higher cost. You look at the very good execution that companies in Namibia had in the last cycle to get into production, but obviously in lower uranium prices, conventional mining also in other parts of the world struggles, unless you're Olympic Dam and have numerous byproducts, uranium being one of them. So standalone uranium projects uh, have a clear case study of being uh, successful and dominating the, the growth in the last 15 years when it was in-situ recovery. Uh, and when you look at uh, what the U.S. has, the U.S. has incredible uh, untapped geology when it comes to sandstone-hosted uranium deposits that are in-situ recovery amenable. Our focus as a company for 15 years has been primarily on that in the South Texas Uranium Belt and the Powder River Basin of Wyoming, where there's both a history of uh, institute recovery mining, but also, again, a lot of untapped potential due to the fact that for 15 to 20 years, most exploration development dollars went into Canada, Africa, and, and basically Central Asia when it came to uranium exploration mining and none in the U.S. Most uranium projects in operation uh, recently or in the last decade were brown, <clears throat> brownfield projects with very little grassroots exploration done over the last decade. The only grassroots discovery in the United States over the last decade is our Burkalo project in South Texas, which is also now fully permitted. So our company's production strategy, just to introduce that for the interview, is uh, really centered around uh, Wyoming and Texas is centered around institute recovery and is centered around 
fully permitted projects. Uh, I think the other issue that we uh, often think is overlooked in the uranium business for project development is how long it takes to permit uh, properties for production. And it takes almost twice as long to permit a uranium mine uh, in, um, in places like Canada and, and, uh, and US and Australia than it does a gold mine or a copper mine. And today, uh, and over the last 15 years, we put quite a bit, most of our emphasis on acquiring low, low capital intensity projects, hence institute recovery, that have proven to be not only a, a great source of production growth, but also low cost production. So today, institute recovery projects are, occupy the first quartile costs uh, for, for the cost curve in uranium mining. Uh, and most importantly, capital intensity, the upfront capital needed to develop an institute recovery mine would be less than $50 million. And most uh, pre-feasibility stage conventional projects in the world today uh, start at 500 million and go up to $2 billion. It's a completely different scale of capital intensity. And so from our perspective, we can develop low capital intensity uh, projects that are institute recovery amenable and permit them in the United States. We're in a safe jurisdiction. We got the biggest customer for uranium mine, for uranium demand in our own backyard. That's the 95 units that are operating in the United States generating baseload electricity in, in this country. And, and doing it again in, in a way that is both environmentally friendly and low cost. So our South Texas hub and spoke strategy is really anchored at our hops and processing plant. It's a state of the art facility has a physical capacity of 2 million pounds per year. And we have uh, produced uranium already from our Palangana mine, uh, which is uh, part of the hub and spoke, the hub being Hobson. And you have a number of spokes or satellite deposits where we're going to recover uranium using the institute recovery method and then ship uranium loaded resin to Hobson for processing. This method for us was executed and we have proof of concept here. We built Palangana in six months for around $10 million. We operated for four years. Again, the proof of concept showing that over the life, over the four years of operation, we came in at uh, about just under $22 per pound cash costs. We shut that production in in 2014 when the uranium prices uh, were approaching sub $40 per pound. Never predicted they would last this long, not in a sub $40 environment, but in a sub $30 environment before just recently recovering back over 30. But then we've really put our emphasis around acquiring additional projects. Uh, making discovery. So that's alluding to Burke Hollow. And then making acquisitions in the Powder River Basin with our Reno Creek project. So Reno Creek is today the largest fully permitted pre-construction institute recovery project in the United States and in South Texas between Burke Hollow, Palangana, and our Hobson processing plant, you've got the foundation for a hub and spoke strategy. The permit at Reno Creek is a two million pound per year. Uh, permit. The physical capacity at Hobson is 2 million pounds per year. So what we really aspire to achieve, what we look to achieve longer term as a developer transitioning to producer uh, is to get to the permit capacity of Reno Creek, full capacity of Hobson, and look to produce up to 4 million pounds of uranium with those, with that framework in mind. Again, that's only a few of our projects, and we and we have uh, we have a very large portfolio of projects. Some of the projects are fully permitted. That's Reno Creek, Burkhalo, Palangana, Goliad, and Hobson. We have more fully permitted projects for production than any other development stage uranium company in the world. But that's only 
about 50% of our total resource base. The other 50% is made up of projects in Arizona, Colorado that are uh, at a 43-101 preliminary economic assessment stage. And so there's also a really strong pipeline of future development and exploration upside on the existing uh, more production ready assets. And the way I, I, would, I would also kind of look at this is really for people to really understand the permitting, uh, Andrew, it took seven years to get the permits at Reno Creek. That's in a mining friendly state like Wyoming, seven years from when it was submitted to when it was granted. Five years in Texas for Burke Hollow, but that's Texas. And at, in Texas and Wyoming, everything for uranium mining is done at the state level. So you don't go to Washington, D.C. and deal with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for any permits. So despite the fact that a state-only permitting that has, uh, that, that has the backdrop of being in a mining-friendly, business-friendly state, it's five to seven years. And so... Again, like I, I really kind of when 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 talking about what I think UEC is all about and what differentiates us, it's not just pounds in the ground. It's not just the fact that we're a past producer, but it's the fact that we've really spent the post Fukushima time frame uh, in acquiring and permitting uh, projects. Pre Fukushima, we had one project that was permitted for production that was Palangana with one million pound per year permit. There, today we have four projects permitted for production and an ability to uh, to get up to about 4 million pounds per year with what what is permitted with the various projects and and Hobson's physical capacity. So that that kind of growth is what we have focused most of our energy on during the bear market that we've had in uranium and frankly we're still in but coming out of. Following up on that you brought up a couple things I want to ask you about. Certainly the the United States is focused uh, most of the projects are on ISR just one thing with the Goliad project, all the permitting on that project has been resolved. I remember that there was some remnants of some issues back uh, 2011, 2013 through probably 2014 that had a little bit of issues, but I believe that's all been resolved. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. So actually, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, we, can, we can have a whole conversation if you want, but my, my adventures uh, and our company's uh, journey through permitting projects in the US. Again, we've, we've permitted more projects and taken them to the very end um, successfully uh, than any other company. And it's not always the same. You know, you think about South Texas right. and South Texas, you feel like is maybe kind of uniform in terms of it all looks the same. It's, it's a similar area and county to county, it's different. And uh, our Goliath project uh, was situated in Goliath County. Uh, and it, um, uh, it was the first project we were permitting as a company, and it had the local opposition to the project. Uh, and that local opposition meant that we had to make sure that not only technically we satisfied the regulatory requirements that the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, the state agency that oversaw the permitting process, wanted to see, but we had to also engage in a number of uh, public town hall meetings. It sometimes was contentious. In some cases, you never win everyone over, and, and in some cases, you you have supporters, you don't have support. It's it's a process, and of course, it is so critical because at the end of the day, uh, it's it, it you're, you're many things to to different constituencies. What do I mean by that? I mean, yes, we're a public company, and you're thinking about and at any point, your decisions are made as in, into what is in the best interest of the company and shareholders. But when you have a project and you're developing for production. 
you also have stakeholders. You have neighbors. You're part of a community. You're, you, 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 have to, you have to find win-win solutions. And so we committed in a, in a way to Goliath County by demonstrating that we were getting involved to, with the community by giving out a high school scholarship year in and year out, by committing to meeting with uh, those individuals who were concerned about uranium mining. And gosh, we even had, I think, one of the landowners who we hadn't leased land from who sued us that we had to deal with the lawsuit because they were concerned about the impact uranium mining we had. It, right. it was it was it, it was a it was a necessary experience. You can't fast track these things when you permit projects in the Western world. It, it's all about transparency and accountability. It took longer to permit a project like Goliath that had opposition versus a project like Brook Hollow that didn't have opposition. So you also learn and see what those issues are. But look, at the end of the day, to answer your question, uh, yes, we did. We did successfully permit that project and received the, the various permits needed um, uh, for that project and remain very, again, cognizant that you can never take permitting for granted. It is about a process that is both technical and about community relations and stakeholder relations. And you and again, that's why I emphasize how important permits are, because, again, I've, as an entrepreneur, as the CEO of your own company, I don't know how many people you've had on your show who can actually say to you that they've permitted not just one, two, three, but have been through the permitting uh, experience on, on four different projects, either directly or indirectly, uh, and, and, and have truly kind of rolled up their sleeves and seen what, you know, what it takes and what the issues are. And so that's, that's why, to me, uh, that's such an important issue, because I've seen how difficult it can be. Uh, right. And, and we've, we've been through it, and we've seen what, what it's like when it's very difficult and sometimes what it's like when it can be less difficult. But either way, it's a time-consuming process. Yeah, permitting in the U.S. is very difficult, and to go through the process uh, takes a lot of fortitude to get through it and, and to see it successful for all parties involved. Well, with everything centered around, initially around Hobson Amir, again, going back to that $50 pound uranium example before, can you just speak to time frame? Are you guys potentially less than 12 months to fire up and get first cake in a can? And then finally, what is the UEC incentive price for uranium to do so? At around the same sort of price of $45 to $50, we, we would look first and foremost at restarting our Palangana mine, which was already in operations, and, and look to restart that project. Uh, and uh, and that, that certainly would be uh, within a 6 to 12-month time frame. Uh, and that's what it took us initially to, in fact, build and get into production at Palangana was, uh, was within, uh, within actually a 6-month time frame. Okay. Uh, where we would look to develop a second satellite project would be our Burkhalo project, where last year we commenced um, development drilling and pre-production drilling for the first uh, production area at Burkhalo. Uh, and uh, so this involves installing monitor wells around uh, uh, the first production area. And uh, we've, we've installed 72 of, of those monitor wells. We have more monitor wells to install still this year. It's a fairly enlarged production area because as we as we kept drilling, frankly, we, we, we found uh, continuation of the mineralized uh, trends. And so we, we decided to enlarge that initial zone for production. And Burk Hollow is, is definitely an important project for us because of just the sheer size of it. It's a 20,000 acre property, uh, 50 miles from Hobson. And it's 50% um, of the project's been explored. Uh, and even that still has a lot of exploration room and potential on it, but half of the project is still unexplored. 
So we, we just see a lot of future growth for this project. And, and again, it's a discovery that our team made in 2012. So it's not your typical kind of U.S. brownfield project, which most companies, including ourselves, have. And um, that, that definitely adds uh, a more exciting dimension for this project. We've, uh, uh, and, and so the timeline here would be uh, uh, over a year to, to bring this project on online uh, as a second satellite project. But it would be very similar to how we built uh, Palangana. So you, you would basically build an ion exchange facility. Uh, it would be the same uh, depth that you would be drilling down to. Uh, typically here, we, we're going from uh, surface down two to 400 feet from surface, both at Brook Hollow and at Palangana. So you're, you're drilling your turnaround time, uh, completion, turnaround, et cetera. Very predictable in terms of what, has, what we've achieved at Palangana and what would happen at Brook Hollow. And again, everything gets uh, consolidated at Hobson when it comes to the processing. Well, you were asking me about Texas, but just maybe if I may quickly on, you know, from a standpoint of Reno Creek and development there, you know, Reno Creek is in an interesting location. If you look at the map of our uh, Powder River Basins uh, presentation, it's within a 20 mile radius of uh, three different processing plants, uh, uh, namely uh, Uranium One's processing plants and Cameco's processing plants, both of whom have uh, quite a bit of uh, idled capacity because, again, no one's producing anything uh, in the U.S. right now. So there's there's potential, and it's a bit of a build or buy or build or toll mill analysis to do in Wyoming to see what is the path of least resistance to develop our resource there at Reno Creek, which, again, is fully permitted, uh, whereby you either build your own process, processing plant or utilize all this idled capacity, which is uh, so nearby. Uh, and those companies potentially could benefit from, you know, have some economic impact for them to uh, generate revenue that way for toll milling. And, and for us, it could uh, reduce our upfront capex and uh, development timeline. So that's to be determined. And based on how the outcome works out on that front, that then determines our timing uh, for bringing that project online. But either way, where the story is differentiated, Andrew, is this. If you say to me right now that you have a $50 uranium price and now it's a foot race to get into production, I have the ability to say that our projects are fully permitted. So all decisions we make to capture that $50 uranium price is simply a question of timeline to construct and be in production. Most projects in the world today, especially the bigger ones in Canada, if you have $50 uranium tomorrow, they're still very much in early stages of permitting. There's still many projects in the world that are not able, if $50 tomorrow, $50 uranium per pound shows up tomorrow and everyone can get to work on that. Most projects in the world are not ready or fully permitted such that then it's a, it's a construction exercise. And, and that again is the, is the big issue here. Everyone keeps talking about $50 uranium as though we're all equal and we're all going to be starting from the same uh, point to capture $50 uranium when we get there. And that's simply not true. That's absolutely correct. And from there, it'll be a matter of who can gain scale and who can capture those cash flows going out. But you're absolutely right. Nothing in Canada is going with the exception of Cameco. Even Denison, your best potential there for speed will be many years out. Most folks in Africa, besides some of the restarts, will take some time, minimum of two years to get underway. So let's talk capital structure here, Amir. Shares outstanding, cash and debt position for us, and also major shareholders, including the holding of management. 
Uh, sure. Yeah. As of our uh, latest filings uh, that we've uh, that we have, which is uh, for the period ending April 30th, uh, there's 184 million shares outstanding. Cash and marketable securities that we have on the balance sheet uh, amount to just about 20 million dollars. So that's 7.4 million of cash and about 13 million dollars of value in the 20% stake that we have in Uranium Royalty Corp. The company has $20 million of long-term debt that we pay 8% coupon on, and that matures in 2022. And that was primarily initiated uh, with Sprott and CEF. Uh, that's Lee Kashing's vehicle, and Sprott being uh, Sprott that everyone knows with Rick Rule as the, as the main uh, uh, backer there. Uh, and so those two make up the $20 million of the credit facility that we have. As far as our... Uh, major shareholders go just looking at the latest uh, filings as of the June 30th filing date and what appears on Bloomberg. Uh, largest shareholder number one is BlackRock coming in at just under 7%, followed by uh, Vanguard at about 5%. Uh, top five shareholders include myself uh, and um, uh, Falcon Edge Capital out of New York. And when you kind of stretch out to top 10, it includes Fidelity and Sprout as well. Again, these are based on June 30th uh, filings that we see. Okay. And can you just expand a little bit? Is the Sprout equity holding and CEF by cashing vehicle and KCR fund, are they all below that 5% threshold or where do they stand? Below 5%. Okay, very well. And the $20 million facility was brought, Amir, due in 2022, as you know, if the market doesn't get moving, do you guys see that that will be extended again? Or what might be the payoff scenario if you're going to pay it off in 2022 or an extension based on market recovery? I mean, certainly both Sprout and, and CEF and then the, you know, the, the providers of that credit facility have certainly shown uh, tremendous flexibility to work with the company already uh, in extending that facility, as you pointed out correctly. Uh, and so I would expect, again, that uh, given the given the fundamental view that these investors have, I mean, as you know, uh, uh, Warren Gilman just recently invested another $30 million into NextGen. Uh, clearly, he hasn't lost his interest and appetite for investing in uranium. Uh, as you know, Rick Rule recently provided uh, a facility as well to uh, Fission, and so you have you have financial providers and cap or, or financial backers here that are not exactly your typical banks. They are uh, much more geared towards uh, understanding and believing in the long-term recovery and the upcoming bull market in uranium. They want to participate in that, uh, and uh, they they view some of these structured investments in the form of either a convertible or a or a credit facility. Uh, as as a way to kind of get uh, get the kind of appropriate returns in a sector that has has frankly been uh, gone way beyond anyone's expectation to have any kind of recovery. To come back to your question, I I, I fully expect that uh, we we have uh, some very supportive and flexible flexible uh, backers and investors there in that credit facility. Uh, we'll deal with 2022 in advance of it, but deal with it. Based on where we just see the best cost of capital, Andrew, I mean, we'll look at everything at that time. We'll look at equity. We'll look at royalties. We'll look at streams. We'll look at debt. We'll look at uh, some of that negative interest rate money that's floating out there. Uh, not that it will ever come to uranium or maybe at some point it will. But look, we'll look at everything. At any given point, uh, an important part of our job as management is to assess cost of capital and, and determine the best way to allocate. So 
we'll see how it plays out. But I think certainly you can see that the supporters and backers involved here, the names we're talking about, the CEFs, Warren Gilman, Rick Rule, Sprott, uh, these are uh, almost become stables uh, in the uranium industry. And they're, they're frankly a few companies that they've backed. They're, they're not behind every company. Uh, and certainly they've backed our company as definitely a, a U.S. name that uh, stands out in a way that you don't see that same involvement with other U.S. Uh, vehicles. So I think it's a vote of confidence as well, uh, uh, despite the yep. fact that debt is something that obviously in our junior resource business is always important to ask and understand and make sure that uh, you fully grasp uh, what, uh, what, what the implications of that uh, uh, piece of paper would be. Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned Fission. Good on Rick and Sprott for collecting that $10 million facility with a first position lien. <laughs> Let's move on here. The key management members, just real quick. I know you touched on Scott Melby, former Energy Secretary uh, Abraham there. Just is there any other key management members, maybe at the operational level uh, at the projects that you'd like to highlight? Uh, definitely as a company that's gone into production, we we recognize that uh, the, the average uh, age in our business is trending up in terms of the invaluable expertise that some of the individuals that have 30 plus years of experience approaching 40 plus years of experience and that we need to definitely invest in a new generation of uh, uh, individuals that can be there to drive the company forward so we have uh, we have members of our team especially down in south texas that have been with the company now for 15 years. And when they joined us, they had maybe five years of experience. And now 15 years later, they have 20 years of experience. And those individuals definitely are so critical to longer term future development. Our head of permitting initiatives, Craig Wall, uh, one of our uh, head engineers down at Hobson, Craig Bordofsky, uh, uh, John Pollock. I mean, these are names that you don't typically hear in these interviews. But if someone was ever wondering who is the next generation of uranium geologists and miners and developers come down to corpus christi and i'll introduce you to you know the folks that have 15 to 20 years of experience who have basically uh, cut their teeth in understanding the permitting the development and building and operating and making discoveries all the things we've done down there uh, and of course they're completely surrounded and supported by the senior individuals that we have in the company with uh, incredibly invaluable experience, the senior management team, individuals like Clyde Yancey, our VP Exploration, 35 years of experience in uranium uh, in North and South America, Andy Curris, our VP of Resource Development, uh, Bob Underdown, our VP of Production. Again, these are guys that have been uh, only in the uranium business, right? Not 10 years in gold, 10 years in uranium, 10 years in copper, 30 years plus in just uranium exploration of mining. And again, the, the collective team has, has worked and gelled well together as a team. Again, we were a past producer. We went into production very quickly from, a, as I mentioned, the standing start of a business plan in 2005 to operating a uranium mine in 2010. I, I know you interview a lot of resource company executives. You would agree that's, that's fast. And we were very quick to execute. That's a testament to the team that we have. Uh, and, and again, just being able to say that, and, and not just say, but to, to be able to have phone calls and board meetings where you have a former energy secretary on your side, you know, having Spencer Abraham as chairman of our company uh, and having his insights into uh, the Department of Energy. And, you know, he's also a long-serving member of the U.S. Senate. That's incredible experience that, frankly, 
uh, it, it, you don't find that often. I think we're the only uranium company anywhere in the world that has a former U.S. Energy Secretary as chairman. And again, Scott's experience as having not only sold and marketed uranium everywhere in the world, but having seen what it's like from a development to production and growing the business, uh, uh, having been there at all the companies that we talked about, like Cameco and Uranium One, I just think you have a, a very strong team at UEC that uh, clearly has been recognized also by our financial backers and top investors in the world. And you you look at whether it's you know BlackRock and uh, on the U.S. side down to Fidelity with Sprott and CEF, all the names we've discussed. I think it's a testament to the quality of the team and what the team brings to the table. Let's move on here, Amir, and talk uh, just about this at-the-market program that you guys have uh, enlisted into. I believe it was sometime earlier this year. Can you just speak to why the financing method was decided upon, Amir? Um, how many shares have been sold since that started? And then, of course, are you looking to raise capital in any other way before the end of the year? So, Andrew, the at-the-market uh, sort of facility has become... Uh, very commonly uh, sort of established and put in place by public companies of all size and shape, and primarily due to the fact that there's a, an advantage to the company and shareholders when you can pay a 2% commission uh, with an ATM offering, which is just the same. It's just a different form of execution than doing a private placement, for example, uh, right. where with a private placement, you're typically paying up to 7% commission to underwriters. And the underwriting and mechanical process involved with executing an equity offering under an ATM ends up costing the company 2%. So that, that sheer saving when it comes to uh, execution of an equity raise is uh, noticeable with an ATM and attractive. Hence, most companies want to make that facility available to themselves. Now, in our case, we have had an ATM uh, in place. Uh, uh, gosh, I'm going off the top of my head, Andrew, I think for about a year and a half. Uh, as of our latest filings, uh, we have not utilized the ATM at all. Uh, so that uh, just goes to show you we, we just haven't used it. I think I can tell you that that partially has to do with the fact that we don't believe and have not been happy with where our share price is as an indication of our, our cost of capital from an equity point of view. And so have uh, really stayed away from that. And you know the last equity raise that we did was in 2018. Uh, and and so we've um, you know certainly felt that there have been a number of head fakes, I guess you can say, in the sector since then, where we felt that there was going to be go time, and we were investing heavily to make sure we were ready in case there was going to be a foot race to capture uranium uh, production mine uh, uh, market share in the U.S. or other opportunities that I don't want to get get back covering the last two years. But clearly, I think we felt that it was important to invest and be ready to. Uh, capture uh, market share. And right now, I think we're in a position where we're, we're of the view that we need to unlock value in other ways than just uh, investing in production readiness. I think we've done as, as much as we possibly can in production readiness. And so what we've done over the last four or five months, and there was an announcement we had in late March that basically indicated that we were uh, going to substantially reduce our expenditures. Uh, including our GNA, including salaries, including just uh, uh, the overall budgeted money that we were going to put in the ground. By doing so, we wanted to extend the runway that the company would have with its resources in terms of cash resources, hopefully a period in time where it would be more of an acceptable cost of capital for the company to, to, to raise money or to look at 
alternatives of uh, an equity raise. Again, whether it would be a royalty or streaming deal, whether it would be uh, other mechanisms, joint ventures, and finally, possibly consolidation. I mean, one thing that uh, I'm a, a big believer in, Andrew, is that currently with the uranium price where it is, uh, the number of development stage uranium companies, uh, some people like to say there aren't many of them. I think arguably there's too many. And I think there does need to be some form of potentially ongoing consolidation because there's just too much GNA out there amongst the various public companies when you consider everyone is in the same position right now, which is no production, uh, yep. no significant revenue. And you need to make sure that you operate uh, in, in a way that just gives you longer runway. So. Uh, looking forward, I think that's that's an important dynamic to pay attention to. Uh, you know, I was the first, I think, CEO out there. But just coming back to April, we 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 did voluntary salary cuts. I personally took a 45% salary cut, uh, disclosed in our proxy material that was filed recently, just leading up to our AGM in late July. Uh, so to answer your question, uh, you know, it's uh, I guess in a nutshell. Uh, so no, we haven't used the ATM, and uh, not happy with the current share price. Uh, with, with respect to being a, a, an attractive place to raise equity right now. You, you know, you, you raise money when you need to raise money. And if you need to do a small raise to basically uh, keep the company uh, minimally active, you do so. Uh, but uh, in terms of uh, raising significant capital to go build and develop, I don't think it makes sense uh, to do that. Like I said, if you do, uh, if you do anything, it would be minimum. And you determine what is the best tool in the toolkit uh, when uh, when that needs to happen. And I think you've seen that okay. you've seen that with other companies, right? Like you you saw, you know, Denison come out and do a five million dollar raise. You're, you you know even Fission's note with Sprout was a ten million dollar note, right? Like no one is raising capex money right now. No one's going out there saying, I feel so good about my share price. Let me go raise all the money in the world and go build a mine, right? You, you're seeing. Basically, you know, three to five to six to ten million dollar raise, uh, and and again, you and I both know that is not the kind of capital you go build a mine with. Now, mind you, if it's an institute recovery mine, that actually covers a decent percentage of your capex. Uh, but um, I think we need to see a re-rating and the equity valuations higher before uh, companies can really uh, pursue those types of objectives. A lot of points, and I want to touch on some of them here just in the uh, shortly. But certainly, compensation, these types of things, GNA costs in the sector, as you just mentioned and alluded to, have been quite high for very many companies for a long period of time in a bear market. And of course, I don't believe UEC was out in the market in March of this year when some other companies in the sector tried to raise capital while their share price was extremely bombed out during that couple of weeks due to COVID. Now, I want to just touch a little bit about what you said about the share price, Amir. Prices at the lower levels, will you be looking to buy into the market? And also, if there is a future financing, will you be participating as part of supporting ownership? I think, Andrew, when you, you, know, when you look at sort of my involvement with, with UEC and Uranium Royalty, I think you, you can definitely see an individual and an entrepreneur who's been uh, committing for a very long period of time and at times have certainly committed uh, sometimes uh, small capital, sometimes significant capital to uh, the businesses that I'm directly involved with. So, uh, you know, I, I can't uh, I can't tell you, obviously, right now, if I'll be buying, uh, you know, next month or the month after that. I, uh, but at the same time, I can tell you in the 15 years I've been involved with uranium energy, uh, I've never sold uh, a, a single share 
from my main holdings that I've acquired in the company since the very beginning. And I've been at it from the very beginning. And you know, I think my average cost base is somewhere around where the current share price is. And I've had open market purchases as high as five bucks a share pre-Fukushima, as you know, 350 a share pre-Fukushima, you know, post-Fukushima. Heck, I even remember buying stock in the market at 20 cents in December 2008 when we had the 2008 financial crisis. So, you know, when you're at it over such a long period of time, it's, uh, of course, putting where my money, where my mouth is and taking a very long term approach with this. Um, I think the only stock I've ever sold was just in the context of option exercises. But like I said, from my main holdings that I've acquired over time, I've never sold a single share. And I that I can tell you, as far as my track record goes in 15 years, I can also tell you that in the case of Uranium Royalty, when we completed the IPO in that company, I acquired my stake by committing to a $2 million placement in the IPO. I mean, I committed $2 million of my personal capital to, to that IPO, uh, which of course, again, I'm the chairman of and something that of course UEC has uh, as an interest in and 20% interest in. And I did that six months ago. And so again, you, you see there too, uh, someone that's not afraid to commit significant capital. I've done it. This is all filed. You can see it. And, and I may very well in the future, like I've done in the past, uh, participate and invest in UEC. Again, I, we have blackout periods. There's all sorts of reasons and restrictions why uh, insiders may or may not be able to buy just as, as, as quickly as, as much as they want. Uh, but but again, I think your your longer term track record has to speak for the the kind of person and entrepreneur you are and how you how you approach your equity and the company and how you think about your holdings. Uh, I don't know too many other people in the uranium industry in the last six months that have committed two million dollars to the of personal capital to their own company, uh, and I've done that, and that's and that 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 tells you again how committed I am and how I think about you know the future here. As for UEC, you touched on it, and I think it's so important. Our share price in March, April, when that crazy sell-off happened just this year, fell as low as 40 cents a share. I think it was 38 or something. You didn't see us panic and hit the button and say, raise, let's raise money. And as you know, some companies did raise money right in that kind of March, April timeframe. And again, not only did we not raise money, but in fact, we went into cost-cutting mode. We announced cost-cutting modes, and we went into very sort of aggressive uh, GNA cost cutting mode, and and furthermore, Andrew, we didn't set any options while the stock was below a buck, or sorry, in that sort of um, you know 40, 50, 60, 70 cent time frame. I think recently when we had our end of year uh, grants, they were set right around 95 or 96 cents, or just slightly below where the current market has now recovered to. So again, I I all of this, I think it's it, there's only so much I can say about what the future holds and what we, uh, I, sure. I may or may not do in the future, but again, I, I, I do look at the immediate past and the longer term past the 15 years to say, look at that longer term track record to get to know management and how long they've been in something, what experiences they've had with it, what kind of ups and downs they've had, and how they've been, how they operated through that. You know, in my 15 years, I've been through the financial crisis with UEC. I've been through Fukushima with UEC. I've been through a longest bear market that uranium industry has seen since Fukushima with this company. And I've just lived through the, the COVID-19 crisis with the company as well, right? And I think all of these crises is when you really get to see how management operates, right? Did they, did it, how are they like in trenches, right? When there's serious warfare going on. 
you know, I think commitment level with a particular company and of course management directly has to do with the amount of, of money they have personally invested in the company as a percentage of their total wealth. That certainly can align conviction if that information is known. And you bring up some good points, Amir, and I want to touch a little bit more on the GNA cost cutting that you guys have started into and, and the compensation for a moment. Because as you know, uranium market has been tough since Fukushima 2011. And in that time, uh, UEC has been one of those companies that has been able to raise capital at will and continue to support the company's GNA and the various other initiatives you guys have gone after over the last five years. And you guys have also spent a lot of money on promotional efforts as well. Um, I think a lot of people can point to that. But 2019, for example, GNA as a percentage of total operational expenses was near 67%. Now, at the company, your total compensation in 2017 was 1 million. And of course, in 2019, your total compensation was 1.7 million. That's not including other involvement with other companies. What's your comments on your total compensation? You mentioned a 45% cut to your salary. Can you just speak to what you guys are doing to really cut down some of your GNA to live out this extended bear market with the anticipation of better conditions in the future? that would, of course, justify higher compensation rewards in a bull market. Yeah, for sure, Andrew. I mean, first of all, I think let's start with uh, just some kind of foundational pieces here. I mean, number one, uh, for the last 15 years, I've only been the CEO of one company, and that's Uranium Energy. Uh, and uh, and that, that again, is, is part of the commitment we need to pay attention to. Now, uh, the second point I would, I would highlight is at the end of the day, what drives shareholder value is value on a per share basis. Uh, and what, what's important about the cumulative uh, actions that the, the outcome of all the actions we've taken and decisions we've made since Fukushima uh, has really been about making the most out of a very difficult hand we were dealt. All uranium companies were dealt a very difficult hand with Fukushima. And it's what you do with it. And what you do with it it is ultimately captured in shares outstanding and value per share. So when you're not producing, you don't have revenue, what is the most important value that you can maintain on a per share basis? And it's your resource in the ground because that's what you're gonna, that's what you're gonna derive value from and revenue from in the future when the uranium price does recover. So when you look at our company in April of 2011, so a month after Fukushima had happened, we had about 72 million shares outstanding and controlled approximately 12 million pounds of uranium resources in the ground in all categories. And so that works out to a ratio of about 0.17 resource per share. And when you look at our, uh, in terms of that ultimate value per share, when you have to kind of, kind of justify everything in terms of what shareholders are ultimately going to think about, ultimately what drives shareholder value is, is really that value per share. And so today we have 184 million shares outstanding, but we have over 100 million pounds of uranium in the ground. That ratio today is 0.54 in terms of total resource in the ground as it was during Fukushima or right before Fukushima. So in terms of value per share and what has been nine brutal years in the bear market, we have actually really not only uh, grown the resource base sufficiently to keep up pace with the dilution burden rate or equity burn that we've had to experience and all uranium companies have had to experience but we've kept our shares outstanding below 200 million shares where you have a number of other companies that are out there that you know 
that have anywhere between 400 to 600 million shares outstanding. Uh, during the same time frame, they're, as, uh, they're at the same age as UEC, still don't have fully permitted projects, and still have billions of dollars of unfunded capex. And there are even companies that have done very big, massive 54-one rollbacks, which we've never done a rollback. So in terms of being stewards of our capital structure, in terms of how ultimately we have operated and navigated the bear market, it's, it really is about on a relative basis. Everyone's been in the same boat. Every company has had to look at their, uh, their, their businesses the same way through the same difficult lens. And that also is the same for salary and anything that is said in terms of executive compensation. Executive compensation has many checks and balances. And the checks and balances really start with the fact that you, number one, set executive compensation at any company based on independent board members that make up the compensation committee. Those independent board members in the compensation committee work with outside compensation consultants. You then propose numbers that ultimately gets reviewed by outside proxy advisors, ISS, Glass-Lewis, that vote and recommend to vote to institutional shareholders as to whether uh, say on pay or executive comp is fair, inadequate, concern, low concern. And at your shareholder meetings, these things are voted on. And so our company year in and year out, including this past July, just we just had our AGM and, and we had, not only did we receive low concern and recommendation to vote on say on pay for executives from our shareholders. So the ultimate test being your shareholders, your shareholder meetings on how those things are done. But the science that goes behind the executive compensation is also one that's derived from having peer groups, primary peer groups, what's happening amongst the industry, your companies, your size, companies slightly higher than you, slightly lower than you. And so it's something that, again, it's not determined, let's say just in my case by myself or any other CEO of a public company by him or herself. Finally, just to kind of capture the numbers that you talked about, my salary at Uranium Energy is was, before the recent cuts that we had, just under $400,000. Uh, that's salary. That's cash that you get to take home, pay taxes on, and, and live off of. Anything else, so when you talk about $1.7 million, uh, anything above $400,000 is either at-risk equity compensation that has to be earned over time, based on vesting schedules that go out to three years or performance milestones that need to be reached. If they're not, you don't earn them. If you look at my July filings, a num uh, uh, almost $200,000 of value that was linked to the $1.7 million that you just uh, mentioned was actually forfeited. Why? Because those performance milestones were not met on July 31st. And so when people look at these compensation tables, they have to understand that when it says 1.7 million or 1 million, whatever the number is of total compensation, that is not an annual salary. That is not a take-home cash pay. The, Correct. The, the only column in an executive comp table for any public company that is guaranteed bird in hand is the column that says salary. So to be clear, for me, that number was under $400,000 as of or uh, as of April, that number for me is just under $200,000. So my salary, what I take home, what is burden hand, is just under $200,000 right now. Any of those other numbers that again, get you up to a million or 1.7 million, that's using Black-Scholes calculation for options. Options are at risk. Why? You gotta stick around for three years to earn them, number one. And number two, 
sometimes they're in the money, sometimes something happens, they're not in the money. I'll give you an example. I personally had a million options that was granted to me five years ago. Their expiry date was September of 2019. You and I know what happened on July 2019 with President Trump deciding to go against the decision to enact uh, tariffs and quotas. Uranium market stocks, uh, most stocks, including us and U.S. uranium stocks, took a big beating. Who would have known five years ago when these options were granted that when the times come for them to expire, you're going to have Donald Trump in power. There's going to be a process where he's going to decide on this you know, thing about quotas. And those options may all of a sudden completely disappear. So last September, I forfeited a million options, along with other executives that had the same thing they were out of money. They were at a $1.40 strike price and the stock was at 90 cents. You lose them. You don't get them back. They don't get reset. They're gone. And that's what I mean when I say that we have at-risk compensation that makes up the total compensation number that we talk about. So I think there's this complete misinformation or misunderstanding where people say, oh, well, it's 1.7 million. Again, that, that, that is derived from a number of different time vesting, uh, performance-related uh, uh, measures, uh, and again, at-risk compensation. As I mentioned, I was the first CEO in the uranium industry to come out and take uh, almost 50% cut to salary this year. I don't know if anyone else has done that. I'd be curious, the next people you interview, ask them if they've taken a 45% salary cut. And I'm also advocating for GNA consolidation in the industry because I think there's too much GNA out there. Uh, and, and we like yeah. to lead by example. So that, that's something that, again, we're advocating. And, and I'm not saying everyone in my company took a, uh, almost 50% cut, Andrew. Some you know, other staff and other individuals uh, have taken 25 35%. But as CEO, as the leader, you got to lead by example. You got to take the biggest hit. And Andrew, look, over a 15-year track record with this company, does, 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 is every year the same where you walk away with 1.7 million of uh, uh, you know, salary of 400000 and then stock options and at-risk equity compensation that may or may not work? Absolutely not. There, there's been years over 15 years where uh, when I started this company, I was, uh, I was taking nothing. There was no salary. Then I, you know, then you start making 50000 Then you make 100000 Then the company grows. Then it, it's different every year when you're an entrepreneur, when you're in a sector that is as volatile and as difficult as uranium has been. There is no guarantees. And when it gets tough, you got to be the first one to say, we're tightening the belt and, and we're going to have to ride this out and make sure we deal with the, you know, with the tough nature of it. I've answered that adequately. And I don't think there's anything out of line, in fact, about uh, my own salary, the, the compensation at UEC, when compared to our uh, primary peer group or secondary peer group, certainly our institutional uh, investors or our, our shareholders collectively don't think that way, as evidenced by how executive pay and say on pay was voted on at our AGM, right. and as evident by the fact that, again, I believe, based on public disclosure, we're the first and only uranium company uh, since COVID who has taken voluntary salary cuts. We were not asked by shareholders to take salary cuts. We took voluntary salary cuts, and I'm not aware of any other company that does that, and I don't think 200000 a year salary for myself right now is in any way out of line or you know i know there's other companies that pay twice that for their investor relations people so i don't know i'll, I'll leave yep. it at that andrew well certainly you bring up some good points and well taken to be fair my information here is looking at historical amounts based on total compensation figures not salary alone 
And I, I completely understand that. And I think that there has been some pushback with some folks in the community about the stage of the company, bear market status that the company is in, and extension of runway, as you talked about earlier, to try to get to better market conditions that would, of course, merit additional compensation and additional milestones that would be reached. And to the point about compensation cuts with other companies, you're right. There's many that have not done anything. There are a few uh, that have and, and reduced some of their costs. And so I, I just want to make sure that people understand that. And the other part is, too, is, is when you look at the peers, and there's three peers that I look at when I look at UEC, it would appear by looking at historical information about total compensation that your salary is higher than your CEO peers. It doesn't mean you haven't done things in the bear market that would potentially merit those bonuses, et cetera. And I'm not here to argue that. And I would just say one more thing, and I appreciate your comments. Investors that are critical of management team compensation levels during bear markets, people got to understand if when you buy equity of a company, you're backing management and that's supporting their compensation levels. So if you don't agree with management compensation, but you bought the stock, yet you are unable to influence change through voting power, then you might have your head examined. I appreciate what you're saying. Just just for the record, though, and just just again, for everyone's like, just just to be on the same page again, at 400,000 salary, my salary, if we're just talking about the US, and this is before the cut, at $400,000, my salary is exactly the same as the CEOs of the two US companies that you're talking about. And so in fact, it's not you're higher. Correct. It's, it's the exact same. Except, I was referring. Yeah. Right, okay, but the only difference is, at this point today, at least, for the time being, I've taken a almost 50% voluntary cut, whereas the other two companies you talked about, haven't. So in fact, before the cut, we were exactly the same. No, like the same salary as us, as the other two companies. As of now, in fact, we're, we're significantly lower. Now, having said that, I appreciate that, you know, we're kind of talking about just two other companies, but the reality is we are in a global business. I, I'm not competing with just those two companies in the US because we're competing with, with 20 other uranium companies who are all competing in the same sandbox for investor mindshare, investor attention, and utility contract and business. And you know, to the same extent that our company hasn't had revenue over the last uh, six months, sorry, six months, six years, um, th the reality is that our primary peer group of other uranium companies that are uh, compensating their teams and their executives and their board members, none of them have revenue either. The reality is, is that a $30 uranium, the only way you can add value by investing your time and being committed to a uranium business is by putting assets in the company, either through acquisition or advancing them sufficiently. So when the market turns, that's where the reward comes from. And I don't think anyone expects that just because the companies don't have revenue that you basically provide these services for free because no, no other uranium company operates that way. And the other thing I would say is that again, go back to the, we gotta go back to the ultimate measurement point in my opinion, which is, Shares outstanding. I mean, we haven't had revenues for six years and we practically have the same shares outstanding as one of our past producing peers in the US and the other producer in the US who is the same age as us, who practically has the same shares outstanding but has done a 50 for one rollback. So my point is again, go back to a very fair and I think straightforward way when you're, I'm not saying you, I mean anyone looking at these companies and measure any company based on the ultimate measurement, because all my actions, 
everything about GNA, everything about any company does will ultimately be captured in its capital structure. Because that, that's, that is the scorecard. And that is right. the number that then on a, per, the value on a per share basis is what any investor should care about. Because whether I make 200,000 a year or 400,000 a year, won't make a single difference down the road as to whether you see trades at a buck a share or five bucks a share. But if we have a tight capital structure and keep adding more value on a per share basis, which we've done, you know, going from having one fully permitted project to four fully permitted projects, going from 35 million pounds of uranium in the ground to 100 million pounds of uranium in the ground. And I know you want to talk about it, so maybe I'll give you a segue. And we've added a project like Alto Piranha. We've added our 20% stake in uranium royalty. We didn't have these components in our portfolio uh, nine years ago. And so, you know, you talk about a group that's basically said, look, we have a difficult uranium market. We're not going to sit around. We'll go out there and make the most of the bear market for our shareholders. And that's what we've done at UEC. And the assets that have been added over the years, I would say, certainly have added value. Now, some of them might be questionable, and I'm not here to argue with you on that, but you have added net value. There's no doubt about that. And my comments about the compensation with peers was, again, historical total compensation. I understand the salary part of that is certainly in line with what I've looked at. And again, if you want to do comparisons, Amir, looking at your Canadian peers, if you'd like to associate your seven-year lead time Canadian peers uh, on their projects, it's pretty evident that some of those peers up in Canada are getting paid even more than yourself, which is uh, a little bit laughable. And certainly if we wanna start comparing even further than that, we can look at a company like Cameco and Gitzel's pay, which again is questionable as well, but let's leave that for another discussion. Fair Um, enough, fair enough. The other part to it, I, yeah, I do want to walk into that. I want to discuss the uh, the titanium project with you. Sure. So you guys have had, some of the filings have suggested probably over the last 18 months or so, Amir, and maybe you can correct me on that, but what I'm seeing is the Alto Piranha titanium project in Paraguay has some type of concession dispute. And so can you just maybe update the audience as to the status and what will be the resolve? So let's step back for a second, a bit of background here, because Clearly, uh, for again, for someone new to this, or if you're not new to this, you know, UEC's bread and butter, our focus clearly, as we've talked about for a long period of time here, is our institute recovery business in Texas and Wyoming. During the bear market, we've uh, looked at various ways through corporate development where we can pick up value and acquire opportunities where we felt, um, you know, the price was right because we're at the bottom of the cycle. And we looked at how we can leverage our technical expertise to, to get into projects and in areas where there was sandstone-hosted opportunities for uranium, i.e. institute recovery amenable projects, but also diversify our permitting risk to some extent. So when we decided to enter the country of Paraguay, we had just been through this very long and contentious permitting process that we talked about earlier in the interview at Goliath. And so we actually felt longer term maybe there was going to be uh, easier jurisdictions to permit in. You know, maybe it'd be good to have some permitting diversification in our portfolio. And, and so we looked at Paraguay because um, in the 80s, Anschutz had done significant work there. In fact, uh, Chuck Melby, the president of Anschutz at the time, who's Scott Melby's father, was the person who spearheaded that for Phil Anschutz and created a number of joint ventures in that country with uh, Korea Electric Power and Thai Power. And then it was all forgotten about until kind of 2006, 7, when the uranium market got going again. 
and a couple of juniors got into uh, that area and Cameco became a joint venture partner and they invested in a number of discoveries or deposits were delineated and uh, fast forward Fukushima happens and that's around the time we started to take an interest down there. And so in a nutshell, with this background, we, we ended up making three acquisitions in Paraguay. And so when you think about the three projects we have in Paraguay, they cover close to 1 million acres. Okay, 1 million acres of ground that we cover between the three projects. Each project is comprised of various blocks that are under concession contracts. And so over eight years that we've been in Paraguay, first of all, we've never had any concessions seized. Okay, we've, we've, we've had great in-country presence. We have a country manager. We've got a small team down there, great relationships. But just as it happens in the U.S. and in any other mining jurisdiction, there are annual regulatory filings. There's assessment work. There's reviews that get conducted by the local mining regulators to, as part of your property interest and maintenance of it. Again, you're talking about a million acres. So yep. what you're referring to in our disclosure has to do with the fact that in our ordinary course of business in Paraguay, again, in the ordinary course of business in Paraguay, and in a couple of cases, we wanted to add an abundance of caution where there were disagreements with the regulator over our annual filings, over a million acres, we took certain action to just make sure we were protecting ourselves out of, again, abundance of caution. But as it pertains to Alto Piranha project, especially block A of many blocks that make up the million acres, where earlier this year we conducted and announced a drilling program where we, we, we drilled this area and we, we uh, this is the area where the pilot plant, we have a pilot plant on this Alto Piranha project is situated on. There are no problems. The, the area, the, the, there's, there's nothing with that block, for example. Uh, so when you talk about uh, any disclosure that we have in our, in our filings, for example, again, it, it's got nothing to do with where this core asset is situated. And again, when you have a million acres and many different blocks that make up that million acres, the maintenance of that is part of our work and part of our job is to make sure we, uh, again, do things cautiously and conservatively in terms of the annual filings and necessary assessment that needs to be done. And that's that's what's there. So ultimately, now, if we just talk about what is, uh, you know, I love this because, you know, you have, uh, you and I talked about this, how I think there was there was a question or someone had said, has has the Alto Piranha project been seized? No, it hasn't been seized. I mean, what, what is there anything in our filings that says this asset was seized? And and if it was seized, how can you do a drilling program at Alto Piranha, which we announced earlier this year in May? So just and let's talk about Alto Piranha for a second. It's not a uranium project. Alto Piranha is one of the world's highest grade, largest ferrotitanium deposits. It has a 43-101 resource of just under a 5 billion tons of 7.4% TiO2. It's mineralization that occurs right at surface, uh, goes down you know, on average six meters, but can go down to 10, 15 meters as well. The late David Lowell, uh, David Lowell is a very famous uh, uh, American geologist who, who has, uh, I think, close to 20 or 30, I forget, discoveries to his credit. He spent over 10 years working on... He's a good man. Passed away a couple of months ago. This was his last significant venture that he was directly involved with, a CEO. Uh, and they spent approximately $25 million in the project. They caused the country of Paraguay to update its mining law due to the importance of this deposit. 
that's how we became aware of it when we showed up in, in Paraguay looking to acquire uranium projects. And look, we acquired Alto Parana for less than $3 million in stock in 2015. Okay, so let's not lose sight of what we paid for the asset as well. Okay, it was, it was, an ex, it was a very well-timed acquisition. We didn't bet the farm on, on, on this asset, and we've done very good work to uh, de-risk it, uh, do some drilling, uh, demonstrate, and, and be able to convert uh, a portion of the inferred uh, resource to measured and indicated that can then support a preliminary economic assessment. But of course, with the reduced spending plans that we have right now, and with the fact that we're a uranium company first and foremost, and this was a secondary asset that we opportunistically picked up for less than $3 million all in. I mean, the initial, I think our, our all-in cost to acquire was actually a million and a half. When I say less than three, I'm talking about anything we may have spent ever on our maintenance of this project, including the 700,000 we spent on drilling uh, recently. This has been a very low cost way that truly demonstrates how we've added value at this company. We've been entrepreneurial, we've thought outside the box when we saw a great deal that had some synergies with a location and a country we were already established in. We took advantage of it. Uh, and uh, today, at, at, this is a situation where, again, as the market recovers a bit, uh, Andrew, and we feel that we can allocate capital to complete the PEA or preliminary economic assessment at Alto Parana, we will do that. Most likely, it'll be in 2021. As I mentioned, right now, because we're reducing spending and we're generally making sure our cash lasts longer, we don't believe it's priority to go complete a PEA and look to advance this project when it's not our core focus. But it's there. We own it 100%. Has not been seized. Uh, it uh, you know shouldn't be lost on the listeners that UEC does have a significant position in Paraguay with a million acres of land that we control with two distinct uranium projects and a titanium asset. And we've been in that country for eight years. So I like to think we know our way around how to navigate that. But just as you would in the US, you would have sometimes disagreements with the EPA or with other mining regulators in Canada, whatever the case might be. It's also no different in, in that country. Well, understood. And just to confirm though, the key assets there, Amir, do not have any problems attached to them, correct? Again, yes. The key, the, the, if we're talking about problems there and, and we're talking about, again, disagreements we might have with the regulator and the annual uh, pr a process that's involved their review of the the minimum requirements or work we need to do to maintain these blocks uh, again just starting with Alto Parana first and foremost that's that's the key and most valuable project down there uh, absolutely none of the issues that in fact you refer to in the in the filings have anything to do with Alto Parana and in fact since our latest filings Andrew uh, we continue to resolve some of our disagreements with the minor regulator down there and feel extremely confident that all of this at the end of the day uh, uh, will be resolved. And again, you're talking about a few blocks that uh, out of many blocks that make up our overall million acre position down there. Okay, appreciate you confirming that. And again, if the audience wants to dig further into that, fully welcome you to grab whatever resources you need in country to go to the office there and, and look up whatever you want to look up. You can do it in the US, you can do it down there, you can do it in Peru, help yourself. Uh, Amir, I, I want to come back just for a moment. When I forgot to ask you, can you just talk about your guys' initial anticipated production rate coming out of your Texas assets, because that'll be the core focus out of the gate here, and can you just speak to the expected capital expenditures to get those first initial projects out of the gate? 
the, the initial rate between Palangana and Brocolo would be to get to up to about a million pounds, which is half of that capacity that we have at Hobson. And uh, the, the total capital requirement we would estimate for that, again, it's an estimate at this point, would be in the ballpark of about 15 million. Now, it was about 10 million to build uh, Palangana. Uh, that's, that's based on actual results. But Burkhalo is a larger project and it's a larger initial production area. So there's more drilling with the monitor well and the well field drilling. Uh, but again, that's the initial number. Longer term, you want to get up to 2 million pounds of production and the full capacity of the plant. But the initial uh, target rate uh, would be about a million pounds with both Palangana and Brocolo, both of which are fully permitted. Okay, and Goliad would be target number three, correct? Goliad is really further down the pipeline for us. We just see a lot more size and scale and possibilities at uh, Brocolo and uh, and Palangana, but Goliad is fully permitted and it's it's there as another potential satellite project for the company. As you know, you've got a couple sound competitors in the U.S. uranium business. You know, you've got uh, Energy Fuels out there. You've got UR Energy. You've got Peninsula Energy uh, up there in Wyoming. Why is UEC in a better position than these companies? And how should investors approach their U.S. uranium equity selection and portfolio? Well, really three comments on on that question, Andrew. Okay, comment number one, I, I pay full respect. And I think any investor looking at the sector today and companies that are uh, left standing and doing more than standing at showing that they have an ability to actually mine uranium and process it after a brutal long bear market that any commodity has seen, you got to take them seriously. I mean, at this point in the game with, with so little combined market cap between all these companies, uh, it, uh, it, it, I just, it, 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 I think we're splitting hair maybe when, when we start kind of uh, beating on each other over who's better and who's not and this and that. So that 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 really, I think, is comment number one. Comment number two is to partially, again, sorry, this is not a disagreement. I'm not trying to disagree with you, but I really don't think of us as a U.S., just a U.S. uranium company and that you should just look at us in the context of the U.S. and uh, just two other companies in the U.S. I compete on a daily basis with global uranium companies when it comes to investor mindset, investor mind share, capital, and utility interest. I, by no means am I getting any love, nor are the other two companies in the US, Andrew, from US utilities. US utilities as customers are very global, so should, so should we be. And that's how our business has been built from the very get-go. From the very get-go, our, our thinking at UEC was, how do you build a business that could be globally competitive? And so when you go, and it's how our, this interview started on this premise, right? My view is that the most competitive way to mine uranium globally, as evidenced by this remarkable production growth in Kazakhstan, is the in-situ recovery method. So another one of the U.S. companies that you're alluding to, as you, you well know, is more focused on conventional mining. I don't think conventional mining in the U.S. can compete with conventional mining in Canada and Africa. I do believe institute recovery can compete very well on a global basis. And now we're talking about different price points. When I say compete, I'm talking about in a $50 uranium world. In a $50 uranium world, can conventional mining in the U.S. compete with conventional mining, let's say, in Canada? I don't even think I'm the only one that would say no. I think if you ask the executives of another company in the U.S. that has conventional mining as a main focus, they would tell you that's $65, not 50. 
So at $50 uranium, which is the, the first stop for this bus for the uranium price to get to, yes. you know, what is competitive globally in that price point? And we are of the view that it's institute recovery and that in fact, even institute recovery projects in the US can be competitive at that price bracket. Now, you start talking about the 65 to 75 price bracket, it's a different story. And conventional mining in the US can be very competitive there. And that's why we have two preliminary economic assessments that have been uh, completed at our Slick Rock project, at our Anderson project in Colorado and Arizona respectively, that show a couple of robust projects at $60, $65 uranium. But coming back to where the, you know, the, the, the puck is gonna go, where we expect the first stop is gonna be for the uranium price, it's the $50 bracket. We wanna make hay in that $50 bracket. We wanna grab market share in that bracket. And so when it comes to that, we have more fully permitted institute recovery projects than any other US company. We have the biggest pre-construction uh, and fully permitted institute recovery project in the United States, that's Reno Creek. We have more diversification in our portfolio with institute recovery. It's not just one or two projects, it's four projects that are fully permitted. And we've remained unhedged and we have really maintained uh, sort of a neutral standing when it comes to our relationship with the uh, U.S. utilities uh, and, uh, and also potential U.S. customers. As you know, due to the fact that you know we were not aggressively pursuing and advocating for uh, trade remedies uh, such as tariffs and quotas, so UEC in a way is sort of like the Switzerland of U.S. uranium mining is quite neutral in the U.S., but it has a global view of things. That we are in a global business, we need to be globally competitive. We compete on a daily basis with companies around the world, and that our strategy to have fully permitted institute recovery projects can be competitive within the $50 bracket where the uranium prices are going to go to first before a new wave of projects come online. And that's where I believe U.S. will shine and U.S. institute recovery projects can have a competitive advantage. Duly noted, Amir, and certainly the global view, absolutely. And ISR, is, it's a little bit laughable, so forgive me, but ISR in the U.S., when you look at that in total global volumes at the $50 bracket, that won't even make a dent in the problem that is coming and the amount of ISR projects that could potentially continue to supplement that. So a very good point on the ISR in the U.S. And just one other part there, help the audience out a little bit. For the folks looking at the U.S. domestic, how should they approach looking at these companies? Should they buy them all? What should they do when we're looking at these production-ready companies? They should probably subscribe to your newsletter, and I don't know. Get you know, there's the, the you can obviously do your own uh, due diligence. There are uh, a number of analysts that cover the U.S. uranium companies and some of the Canadian ones as well, so you can get uh, independent third-party research. Uh, there are folks like yourself who uh, do a consistent, regular job of covering the sector through interviews and uh, and commentary that I'm sure you have as well. Um, Obviously, all that we can do as company representatives is come on shows like this and make our case. Uh, our, our corporate websites are full of information. We're public companies, every single detail uh, from uh, uh, GNA to compensation to geologic resource to everything is obviously available. So you can spend as much time as you want or as little time as you want to do your own due diligence and ask around and read some research reports and get a sense of 
you know, who all the players are. But I mean, suffice to say that the investable uh, universe of uranium companies today, of those that are publicly listed, is probably around 10 billion. In 2007, at the peak of the last bull market in uranium, it was 120 billion. And so the sector is extremely small. I mean, our, the combined market cap of all publicly listed uranium companies is probably like what Tesla trades in a few hours of daily trading volume. I mean, it's just small. And and so they're, um, and, and again, any company that's left standing today, irrespective of the fact that on interviews like this, we're asked to explain why we're different than others. And sometimes it sounds like you're taking a jab of, at, at, at others. You really aren't. I think you got to respect and believe that any company that's left standing has some uh, some viable long-term competitive advantage that should be realized in a better uranium market. And we shouldn't forget that it's just been a really brutal bear market. And again, kudos to any management team and, and board and group and shareholders, frankly, too, who have just kind of stuck with the narrative and the thesis and, and, are, and, and hopefully will be rewarded very, very handsomely for, for this uh, long-term approach to investing and, and, and a sector that is truly like the definition of contrarian investing. Look that up in dictionary. It should be the, <laughs> the uranium sector that shows up as, as the definition for that. One word, just uranium. Well, Amir, just following on to that, as we ask all of our guests, why shouldn't potential investors be considering UEC at current price levels? What would you say to uh, potential investors who are listening? I mean, first of all, I think you, you have to ask yourself if you, if you, what kind of value and what kind of opportunity you like. I mean, in a world today, so let's start on a relative basis. Why consider UEC? I think, first of all, on a relative basis, relative to a world where uh, the stock market is back at a new all-time high, every sector is uh, absolutely flying on multiples that is a premium to uh, net asset value, premiums to anything imaginable. Uh, one of the only sectors in the world that uh, I know of that I think I like to be challenged on that is still trading at a massive discount to NAV, a discount to replacement value, a discount to uh, where it has been over the last decade is the uranium business. And that context, I think the UEC story, again, as we've touched on, uh, is um, differentiated by uh, just simply the production readiness we have, as demonstrated with the number of fully permitted projects that we do have the ability to produce uranium using in-situ recovery in politically safe jurisdictions like Texas and Wyoming, the fact that we have proof of concept as a past producer, uh, management team that's aligned with shareholders. As I mentioned to you earlier, myself, I'm a top five shareholder of the company right next to uh, BlackRock and, and Fidelity and Sprott. Uh, no other uranium company as a former United States Energy Secretary as chairman. So again, it's another validation and confirmation of the quality uh, that we have. The backing of people like Warren Gilman and uh, the backing that links back to Hong Kong with Li ka the, uh, and, and all of that, again, has only been extended to two companies in the uranium sector, ourselves and NextGen. Uh, and so again, we've attracted investors that are quite uh, exclusive and and, so, and 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 go through a long diligence process before obviously deploying capital. And we've been around for 15 years. I mean, this is not a an overnight fly-by-night company. I just, we've been around long enough where there's a long track record uh, and a track record that shows uh, we were able to aggressively grow our business over 100 million pounds of uranium, more permitted capacity for production in the U.S. than any other company for in-situ recovery uh, and in-situ recovering both 
being low cost. And again, scale. Uh, again, I think this is the misunderstanding. People think institute recovery projects are small. Again, they're not. That's how Kazakhstan has become 42% global producer. That's all institute recovery. And the problem in the U.S. is we've done very little exploration for uranium in sandstone settings. All projects except for Borkalo are brownfield. Watch the future of uranium resources when people actually commit capital to exploration. Andrew, don't forget, six, seven years ago, uh, Nexion's aero deposit didn't exist. Fission's aero triple uh, uh, R project didn't exist. These projects were discovered through exploration drilling. Modern exploration hasn't been applied to the most prospective regions of the United States in 15 years. And a lot has changed in 15 years of exploration. There just right. has not been an incentive to do grassroots exploration in the U.S. And when you look at the grade of uranium in the U.S. for sandstone-hosted deposits, it's no different than in Kazakhstan, except we don't carry a lot of resources on our books because we haven't had the financial incentive or market environment to, to do a, a prolonged period of exploration, drilling, to discover new pounds. That's how the business works. And we just haven't done that in the U.S. I don't say we as UEC, but the, the whole sector. We've done that to the extent we could have Burke Hollow. And we made a nice discovery, and it's only going to get bigger. But with, with the difficult uranium prices and with sandstone deposits being low grade, they don't really capture the market imagination like projects in Canada do. And so as a result, you don't attract as much exploration capital. And we don't have some of the tax advantages they have in Canada with flow through financings where you get a kickback on tax if you spend money in the ground doing drilling. We don't have that in the US. So there's been no financial incentive to drill for uranium, to make new discoveries. But whether you listen to the US Geological Survey that says some of the biggest untapped potential for institute recovery deposits is places like South Texas. US Geological Survey has pegged the number at 200 million pounds of uh, undiscovered uranium that they see as potential down there. Those are big numbers. And that's not the kind of numbers anyone carries on their books on institute recovery projects right now, but that's because we're also not drilling for it. So I believe long-term really be belongs to uh, grassroots exploration, ability to look for uranium, find more sandstone-hosted, low-cost ISR projects. I believe UEC can lead the way in, in that, and we've demonstrated that both in producing uranium using low-cost ISR and discovering uh, new projects like Burkhalo and aggressively consolidating, right? Doing M&A. We've done more M&A than any of our peers and believe there should be more M&A and consolidation in the sector because, frankly, there's too much GNA and cost right now in a sector that still has recovery ahead of it. Well, certainly higher prices will provide the opportunity for companies to do that as you said, ISR in the States right now is, is very negligible, but when the capital dollar goes in, when the prices are good and everybody's in a bull market, there certainly will be some advancements made. There's no doubt about that. Well, Amir, let's wrap up here. How can folks uh, reach out to you and also to the company for more information? www.uraniumenergy.com, www.uraniumroyalty.com. Our ticker symbol is UEC on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, you can look me up on Twitter at Amir Atnani. If you're interested in what I'm doing in the gold sector, take a look at www.goldmining.com. And I would say that's probably uh, covers all the bases. Really appreciate you coming on, taking the time, talking through the issues, uh, dealing with some tough subjects. And best luck to Uranium Energy Corp as you guys get underway in the upcoming cycle. Andrew, I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll come back and do some follow-ups uh, 
whenever you're available and there's uh, more new developments to talk about. Uh, but it was a great first introduction. Uh, we had a lot to cover and you had a lot of questions, but I enjoyed it and I, I look forward to uh, reconnecting with you in the near future.